Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. A podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer, and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. On today's episode at 1033, we are joined by Mike Welford, who is a sergeant out at Abbotsford Police. Mike comes in with over 19 years of service, four with Abbotsford Police, and 15 with the RCMP. He is now the sergeant of the gang crime unit in Abbotsford. He's, flour- he's flourishing, he's doing extremely well, and he loves talking about mental health and post-traumatic stress and being there for his people. Mike, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's been a long time coming that we've tried to get this rolling. Yeah, a few months, I think, maybe two, three. Yeah. Uh, and uh, for the audience that's listening, let's say that I was the one that always canceled. Mike is such a gentleman. He never wants to cancel. He always wants to be the uh, the utmost perfect gentleman in this space. So I'll, ta- I'll fall on this sword for you, Mike. Anybody who <laughs> knows me who's listening will not believe you. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, no. So this episode, I'm actually very excited because, again, another perspective from someone else that can speak specifically to the struggle that is post-traumatic stress. Mike, do you want to share with us just a little bit of your story so our viewers can kind of get to know you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've been a, um, in law enforcement or been a police officer now for 19 years, just started my 20th actually. And uh, prior to that, I was a, a corrections officer. Um, in, uh, on the island for just shy of 10 years. Um, so kind of a long time dealing with bad people and bad things. Um, so for me, there was, there was never this kind of one incident, um, that, that, that triggered something for me. It was, it was more like a, a cumulative effect of, of all those years of dealing with other people's trauma and seeing bad things and, and, you know, uh, I won't go get into the list of all the bad things we see because there's no need for that. But um, anybody who's a first responder who's listening knows exactly the type of stuff I'm talking about. So what, what happened for me is um, I, I was always the guy that, uh, first of all, 100% believed in, um, in PTS, 100% believed that we need to take care of ourselves after um, critical incidents. Um, and in fact, uh, in my corrections days, I was a, um, a CISM member. We didn't, we didn't call it CISM, but um, a critical incident stress management team. Um, I was even the team leader for a while. And I, even informally, I've always, I'd always put myself out there as, if you need to talk, if you're going through stuff, call me, wake me up, text me, um, page me, because when I started this career, I still carried a pager. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, just, I put myself out there as that person that, that really recognized that, um, seeing shitty stuff will, can make you have a shitty time and you might need some help going through it. What I never recognized is that it was also happening to me because, because I, because I knew it was, it was, it was real because I knew it happened to people because I understood it and, and sought to understand better and better all the time. I just assumed that I was somehow immune to it, which was just completely, you know, almost willful blindness on my part. Um, so what happened is, uh, um, after years and years of kind of just dealing with my shit by ignoring it, um, it caught up to me. So then what that looked like is I started having, um, I, I used to call them panic attacks, but it's, it, it was never really a panic attack. I never felt like panicked, but it, the best way I've been able to describe it is, is when you are, are in traffic and you have to, um, uh, somebody cuts you off and you have to take evasive action to avoid a collision or you're, you're sitting on your, you know, rocking back on the back legs of your chair and you almost fall and catch yourself. That's sort of, you know, five or 10 seconds of, of panic, fight or flight, tension in the stomach, elevated heart rate. So I would, I would experience that, um, but with no external stimulus to cause it. Like I would literally be relaxed on my couch, like as relaxed as you could be. And then I would start to feel that sort of physiological um, fight or flight, tension, fear, panic, wh whatever you want to call it. Um, and sometimes it would be fleeting. It would last a few minutes. Sometimes it would last a few hours. Um, sometimes it would last a couple of days. And I was very aware that it was happening and I didn't understand why it was happening. Um, so for the longest time, I just did everything I could to ignore it. Um, you know, I'd, <laughs> I'd start to feel that way. So I'd, you know, turn off the TV, lay down, do some, you know, breathing exercises or something, try to relax myself. Um, and then I'd feel better. And so I, you know, carry on, move on, on to the next problem. Um, and it became so persistent that, uh, if I, it, it, it started to become very disruptive for my life because it would happen at very inopportune times It would, you know, it started happening not nearly as often, but it did start happening at work. It would, it would happen when I was home alone with my daughter. Um, um, it was disruptive. So I went to my doctor, told him what was happening and he said, yeah, you've got, um, he stopped short of saying you have PTSD, but you have stuff going on there that you need help with. Um, prescribed me with some uh, medication initially um, to help me sort of bridge the gap between where I was at and getting the appropriate uh, psychological guidance. Um, and the medication was like fantastic. I felt way better. Um, it wasn't like anything that made me you know, high or anything like that, but, um, but it, but it worked really well. It was, uh, like a antidepressant type medication. Um, and it essentially stopped that from happening almost immediately, like within a couple of weeks, it was like bordering on miraculous for me. Um, but of course, again, you know, being smarter than doctors, of course, I'm, I'm, I've been doing this for so long. I must know better. 
Um, I disregarded his, uh, the part of the medical advice he gave me that you need to go talk to somebody and said, oh, the medication is working great. I don't need to go talk to somebody. I'm fixed. Um, well, that was incorrect <laughs> because after uh, probably, I don't know, six months or so, then the medication stopped. Then it was, then it was, uh, then it was time. So um, I, I went to see somebody and it, the, my initial visit with this one person was um, not at all positive. It was, it was not good. Um, and it completely turned me off talking to a psychologist, um, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, you, if you go to a, a mechanic and he, does, and he rips you off, you're not going to stop going to mechanics. You still have to get your car fixed. Um, and kind of the same thing, right? So um, I eventually f um, found, um, uh, through work actually, I came across a psychologist um, and ended up making an appointment with him. Um, and uh, night and day, 100% positive experience. And uh, he deals almost exclusively with first responders, lots of cops, corrections, military, etc. cetera. Um, and he figured me out right away. And I told him basically what I just told you. And he's like, okay, yeah, I see what's going on. And he described it um, very simply for me because I have a tiny little brain um, that's not at all scientific. Um, so the way he described it for me is he said when, when anybody, um, but first responders in particular, um, when, a, when a regular person regular because cops aren't regular cops aren't normal um experiences some sort of trauma like a, a loss of a loved one um you know an injury whatever they just see something um traumatic um there's a normal way that um that people process that whether it's um you know they they cry they experience remorse they um, talk to their family they talk to their friends um they like kind of sit with it for as long as it takes to feel better. But as first responders, you know, and, and in particular, um, the people that are responding to traumatic incidents. So it's certainly not specific to cops. Paramedics definitely would go through this kind of stuff. Corrections officers, you name it. Um, I don't need to, to list them all, but, um, so we go see some sort of trauma, um, and whether it's, you know, visual trauma or emotional trauma or whatever, we go see something super nasty. Um, and then we write the file and hit 10-8 and we're, we're back at it to the next piece of trauma and the next piece of trauma and the next piece of trauma. And there's no time to process it like a, in a normal, healthy way. So the way he described it for me is when, when you do that, you put it in a box. And he said, he said imagine a, like the, a box the size of a banker's box, like one of those cardboard fold-up boxes. He says, you put that piece of trauma in the box um, and put the lid on it. And then the next one and the next one and the next one. Whereas instead of doing that, if you, if you take the time to deal with the trauma in a healthy way, and then he described for me, like if you picture the file room um, in a police department or at the front desk of a doctor's office where everything is nice and neatly filed and stuff like that, and everything has its place. He said, that's where you're healthy but still negative memories go. Um, they get put on the shelf. You can access them when you need them. They're there. Um, they're not gone. Um, but you know where they are and you know where to get them when you need them. The stuff in the banker's box, it, it's just a big mishmash of all this stuff. 
and sooner or later um, the box will overflow um, and you can no longer you know cram the lid back down on it and when I started having that anxious fight or flight panic attack whatever you want to call it um, that was essentially the box overflowing stuff was falling out of the box um, with no input for me whatsoever no control for me whatsoever um, and you can use whatever metaphor you want I know the um, the Delta chief on it, the Ben don't break podcast he uses uh, the metaphor of a backpack and putting pebbles and rocks in the backpack so you know little bits of trauma small rock big critical incidents big rocks and eventually it gets too heavy to carry same concept um, um, so what I then needed to do with the help of the psychologist um, was empty out the box and make room for more stuff because there is as long as we're in this career as long there's always going to be those days where you go see something shitty and you write the file and hit 10 8 and on to the next and there's no time to um, to process it in in some sort of healthy way so not only do you need to have room in the box to accommodate that but you need to regularly empty the box and make room for the next stuff and make room for the next stuff um, so that was like a probably a six-month process with with Matt my psychologist who um, helped me one by one take things out of the box um, and some of it was quick and easy and some of it was not a lot of fun um, and the, the, the exercise he gave me at the beginning of it was draw a line down the middle of a piece of paper write down all of the shitty stuff you've seen in the last 20 years and all of the positive experiences you've had in the last 20 years personally or professionally and I was very lucky because I had a quite a balanced list I had lots of good stuff to write on my list but at, in the process of writing down all of the negative stuff it became very apparent to me what was still in the box because I would I'd write something down or, or think of something and and have some sort of response right some sort of reaction like oh okay that's one of the things we need to put at the top of the list I need to show, sort my shit out with that quickly um, so yeah it, it just we just started scratching stuff off the list one at a time um, and at the same time kind of building a, a new skill set to allow me to recognize um, what I could process on my own and what I needed help with um, like you know kind of moving forward Yeah. yeah, that's a yeah, wonderful description of kind of uh, how you went from being a certain mindset or having a certain approach to uh, the career to now becoming something much different. Uh, I can relate to that story immensely because I handled myself the same way where I stuffed all of my trauma deep down and suppressed it as hard as I could, thinking that that would be a solution for me and I could forget it. And what happened for me is it was like layers of the rock, right? They just get more compacted and harder to deal with. And then until eventually one day, it just, it all, it all comes crashing out, right? Um, so for you, obviously you're very aware that you were using this suppression belief to deal with the trauma in the beginning that you were stronger than it that you were better than it whatever however you want to describe it uh, and you were helping others at the same time how do you actively deal with the trauma now when you experience it can you give our listeners kind of an example of how you've now shifted and grown in this space yeah so um so once you know 
I'll keep using the same metaphor of the, of the banker's box. Once I had cleared out the box, or at least made a significant amount of room in it, um, um, and, th and this took me quite some time and, and uh, um, you know, a lot of learning with Matt, because part of, of the process that I went through him was, was not just therapy, but it was also learning, like, like teach me why this is happening so that I can understand it. I need to, I need to get why, and then I can fix stuff, right? Um, so, so kind of now at the, at the end of my, at the end of my shift, I've got about a 20, 25 minute commute. Um, so I'll, uh, I, I just kind of replay my day, um, in my head on my drive home. And I, you know, is there anything that, um, that needs dealing with? Is there anything that's bugging me? Is there anything that, uh, is unresolved or, or, uh, or whatever? And if there is, then my next question is, okay, is this simple enough that I can deal with it on my own? Um, and if so, uh, I just kind of go through my own little mental process of replaying it, you know, almost like a, like an internal debrief, both operational and psychological, like, um, an ops debriefing and a system debriefing just in my head. Um, sometimes out loud cause I talk to myself too, but, um, that's for a different therapist. Um, um, and if it, so if it is, if I can just deal with it on my own, then I'll go through that. And, and at the end of that 20 minute commute, if it's still bugging me, um, then, then I'll, I'll kind of, I, I keep a bit of a running mental list of, okay, next time I go see the psychologist, um, uh, here's a couple things I want to talk about. And if, and literally if I have to put it back in the box until I can go see him again, then I do that. Um, the, the difference now is I, I know what's in the box. Um, and, uh, I can pick stuff out of it strategically, um, in the right setting, you know, whether it's on my commute home or whether it's in Matt's office or, um, you know, if, and if it's somewhere in between, it may, it might be that I, uh, that I talk to my wife about it or I talk to a coworker about it, um, and just kind of debrief it that way. Um, not every, not every, uh, shitty file requires, um, psych intervention. Um, it's knowing the ones that do that is key. Your support system from years ago, have you, have you kind of taken a moment to reflect on what it looked like when you were doing things differently as opposed to now? And what does that support system look like? And how do you approach that support system? Um, so uh, always had a great support system. Um, uh, and, uh, in typical cop fashion, I'm on wife number two. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, but both of them, um, uh, in, in different ways ha were great supports. And my current wife is a great support. My ex-wife was a great support. Um, I have, uh, my, my mom used to be a counselor with, uh, street kids. Um, so I, I, I've got lots of, of support. Um, personally and professionally, I've worked, I work with some great people, I have some great mentors, um, work with a lot of people way smarter than me. Um, so the, the problem for me has not been a lack of a, of a stable support system. The problem for me was not accessing it. So, you know, I, I would just not talk about the shitty files. Um, or I would, I would talk about them you know, almost in an energetic way, like, oh yeah, it was a crazy day today. I saw this guy had been dead for a month. 
um, you know, I'll talk about it like it's cool, uh, as opposed to talking about it like, oh man, that is, not only is that super sad that that guy died, but it's also super sad that nobody noticed he was missing for a month. Um, and gee, I'm sure glad that's not me kind of thing. So it, it, it's vitally, vitally important to have a, a solid support system, but it is just as important, if not more important, to know how and when to access it. Um, otherwise, it's no good. It's no good having a seatbelt in your car if you don't put it on. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. And I think even from my own experience, the um, whatever you want to call it, right? If we wear masks in the beginning of our careers or we have the dark humor, whatever it is that we're using to kind of try and tell ourselves that these these events that we're going to, they're normal when they're not and we don't have to feel the painful emotion behind it and what we see. And I told myself the same stuff too. Like I, I was constantly wearing masks in the beginning in kind of like this state of denial, right? Where I would talk about something that was incredibly, like you said, sad. And, you know, it would come with such a a need for compassion, but yet I would bring it out and I would make a joke out of it. And half the time I would tell people this and you'd watch people's faces in the room and they'd be like, Oh my God, that's horrible. <laughs> right. And then you're like, Oh geez. Okay. Maybe I need to tweak that joke a little bit. Right. So it's, we're, we're so all wired the same, right? So you and I having this conversation again is just to give people that kind of that, uh, that ability to have awareness into why they're doing things the way they are right now. It's actually extremely unhealthy and it keeps you from processing the trauma, feeling it. And that's kind of what you alluded to as well, Mike. So it's, and that's interesting too, because for me, like my, my support system was for the most part there too. But again, I didn't take the opportunity to tap into the people and connect with them and connect with myself. Like I didn't have any emotion around, you know, okay, this is what I went through or, you know, hey, this is what I should be feeling right now or actually shed a tear from seeing a horrible collision. Um, what's your relationship like now with your your emotions and say vulnerability? Um, I think much, much healthier. Um, um, I am, I, I, I'm just not afraid or embarrassed anymore to to say hey that that was a hard call um i'm gonna go talk to matt about that or i need to go meet up with my team and debrief that or i need to um you know make the time to sit and talk with my wife about it or or whatever i need i'm not afraid to access it um because what i am afraid of is that i will go back to feeling the way i did where i didn't have control of how and when I was going to have that trauma response. Um, so yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I actually have a team of therapists now. I have Matt that helped me through all this. And then I have another, uh, clinical counselor that I go see regularly that, uh, um, um, that I, you know, I deal with some personal stuff on, but also the same kind of trauma stuff. And, and, uh, so yeah, I joke that I have a, uh, one therapist is not good enough for me. I need, I need all of the therapists. Um, but uh, between the, between the two of them, um, um, they've sorted me out fairly well. I think others that know me might disagree, but I think I sorted out. Yeah, to dive, can we dive deeper into your emotions, uh, say post-traumatic call? And I kind of want to paint a clear picture as to what this may look like for you. And again, this is kind of personal sensitive, so I don't want to go too, too no deep. 
But I think for you, like you had mentioned too, like when you were driving home at some point, like you would really, you were approaching the conversation that we just had now with the logic, right? Replaying the events in them yeah. in the mind and getting it out, which is perfect. But you've also touched on too how you've learned that you can allow yourself to emotionally feel the pain that comes from the call now as well. Do you find yourself driving home at some points with uh, and allowing yourself to feel that emotion in that moment? And and yeah. how do you how do you honor that space? Because that's also a very crucial part too of processing the trauma. Yeah, I, I, and I'm so I'm, I guess I'm I'm a bit selective about how and when I I if I if I recognize that, that you know this this particular file or event or call or whatever is going to um, is going to have a, an impact on me and I need to let that impact play out. Um, I I try not to do that on my drive home. You know, driving along the Trans Canada Highway. You know blubbering like I uh, have just watched a Hallmark Christmas movie um, or uh, you know so if, I, if it's if it's something that's gonna really bug me then I will then I'll wait um, and wait till I get home talk to my wife about it talk to a buddy about it uh, make an appointment to talk to one of my therapists about it um, and by by keeping lots of room in the box I can I can afford to do that. I have I have the space to just say I gotta I gotta wait. I need to process that, but I can wait um, because it's gonna make me break down. It's gonna make me cry. It's gonna make me um, have a shitty night's sleep, or it's gonna make me exhausted and I need to sleep for twelve hours. Um, but that like that that took me a long time to get to that place where um, where not only would I have the self awareness to know how much help I'm going to need with that particular thing. Um, and to, to have the space to, to do that, right? Like to, um, to be able to put it off, not indefinitely, but you know, sometimes a week or two, if I, if I'm waiting for an appointment or, or whatever. Um, and I, like, I will literally keep a handwritten list, um, to say next time I, I go see Matt, I have to talk about these two files because I can't let it go any longer than that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a crier. I'm not, a, I'm not afraid to cry. Um, I, I, it's like a, a joke with, with Matt and with um, Marissa, the other therapist, that um, it's like a conditioned response. I'm like Pavlov's dog. I walk into their office and sit down and I start crying, even if nothing is bothering me. Like, I, I, like I'm, I, I cry all the time. And it's, uh, it, it can almost be annoying sometimes. I feel like it's getting in the way of stuff, but... Both of them assure me that it's a good thing, but I'm not convinced yet. Well, yeah, no, I, to be honest, it's funny. Why, why are all the big strong guys always the ones that cry the most? I'm know. the same way. I like, I can walk in and most days I'm like, hey, I don't even want to have happiness in this room. I just want to feel sad and let it out and I'm good. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm very much the same way. And I'm glad you're able to see that from your own journey that the important part of this is there's a, there's a very kind of logical process to how this all happens, right? You go through, you know, a traumatic event and basically the most simple things you can do for yourself is just talk about the event mm -hmm. and feel it. The body will do the rest for you. It's yeah. when you miss those two pivotal points. Now, all of a sudden you're storing stuff, you're suppressing it, you're minimizing it, you're telling yourself it's not as big as it was. You're not honoring your own emotions that came from the situation. You're shutting yourself down. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. that has to stop. 
We have to be there for each other to give people the space so that they can sit down and say, hey, what I just saw was horrible and I need to cry or I need to laugh hysterically for an hour. Whatever that looks yeah. like for you, feel it, process it. Because And that's the other thing too. Like, Have you started to learn too where your, um, your trauma sits? Like the mind versus the body, that whole concept? Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure I'm on the same page in terms of the question, but... Um, so I, so I guess I'll say I think so if I'm if I'm interpreting you correctly, um, yeah I I, I, uh, I again that's part of that debrief process that I put myself through on my drive home is um, is is what's bothering me and how is it bothering me? Do I need to cry it out? Do I need to um, um, you know it, it it might be something like. Uh, needing to know the outcome of the file if i you know if i respond to a serious collision and the guy looks like he's gonna die um it might not be resolved for me till i know if he did or not um you know that kind of thing so depending on the nature of it um what i need in terms of of uh closure i guess is the, the word that pops to mind um that it might be different um so there's I guess there's no one answer to that question for me because um, it's it's different depending on the nature of it and whether it's personal or professional or um, um, yeah does that does that answer your question at all or did I just go on a tangent? No, you did it beautifully. I mean, and this is the beauty too behind PTSD is it looks so unique to each individual, right? Like what I've learned in my journey might not transition over to you and what you've learned. So that's mm -hmm. why when I have these, these interviews, I always want to ask people like, how do you view this? Because the way I view something, someone's going to disagree with it naturally along the line. And they may be someone who's suffering. So if you come at it from an angle such as, you know, X, Y, or Z, that's different from what I maybe have learned. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, the, the one thing that I've learned in my journey, and I didn't really understand this, but I, there was a time when I was uh, in active addiction and I had to go to rehab. So when I went to rehab, I actually thought the trauma was in my mind. And I thought that's where all of the work had to happen because uh, all of these stored memories and these flashbacks mm -hmm. and everything, right? And I remember my psychologist sitting down with me. And he's like, Nate, you know what? He's like, it's, it's actually not in your mind. He's like, the flashbacks are in your mind. But that sends a signal to the body to get the body amped up to get ready to do these different things. He's like, the trauma actually sits in your body. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that I kind of looked at it differently because for a long time too with PTSD, you look at yourself as broken and you go, what's wrong with me? Why am I mentally unwell? And it actually has very little to do with the mind. There's certain components of PTSD that make up the journey, but a lot of it predominantly is actually sitting in the body. Like even you nailed it. Like those startle response episodes that you were getting while sitting on the couch with no stimulus around you, that's the body saying, hey, I don't feel safe anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's a scary place to be. Yeah. And that's how, we that's how we can become unwell. And if your body is in that state, that fight or flight, and just like not having a great time, no doubt the mind is going to follow it. And it is going to start to get unwell as well. And that's where I think guys have a lot of issues, right? They start to crack or the, the, uh, the banker's box gets too full, whatever the case is. Mm -hmm. um, so again, I mean, this is the beauty of the community, right? We're here to teach everybody on kind of, you know, what this can look like. Now, again, am I right in my assessment of where trauma sits? Maybe, I don't know. I, I'm not sharing it for that reason. I'm sharing it just because however it looks to you in the list or for the listener on the other end, run with that. 
this is a place to just gain knowledge and grow from this space because we've, I'm sure you and I have seen so many people impacted by PTSD Mm -hmm. and we need to do a better job of supporting them. One of the big things too, that I wanted to run back to was your, your conversation and some of the ideas behind the medication. You were very open about taking it, which is phenomenal. I think we need to remove that stigma too, that police officers shouldn't be on medication. Mm -hmm. How could we not be on medication for some of the things we see? And have to be a part of. Now, what you what you nailed, and I absolutely loved it, was you then again took the medication, thinking this was the cure all, and ran from the issue. Mm-hmm. So, and that's such an important part too of the process as well. Is you have to take the pill, but you also have to go and get the help. The pill is a band aid. It takes kind of the some of the steam out of the pot, so that you can breathe for a bit and go and talk about this stuff. Uh, so, all incredibly amazing stuff for you. And I'm glad to hear that you are now kind of processing some of this stuff a lot better and able to share now to reach back and kind of help people who are suffering and, and bring them uh, into a better place. One thing that you you went through at one point in your career, and this is such an important part for us too, is when police officers start to lose compassion or an ability to feel compassion in tragic moments or just for routine calls. Can you tell me about what your compassion fatigue looked like when it happened, why it happened, and kind of paint a picture for that? Yeah. Um, so I think it can it, that can go one of both ways. You can lose your ability to feel compassion or at least show compassion. Um but you can also be heavily weighed on by how often you show compassion and how 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 many times you are kind of called upon to help other people through their stuff. Um, and and again, I've I've like I said at the beginning, I've always put myself out there as um, you need me, you call me. I'm I'm that guy, right? And I want to be that guy. Um, but when I wasn't taking care of my own stuff. Um, I found that because I, I was still always willing to take that that phone call in the middle of the night or or whenever, um, when I wasn't dealing with my own stuff, a couple of things would happen. I would be just just exhausted by trying to figure out what was going on with me and listening to the stories of other people, um, and in some cases trying to provide them guidance when I didn't even know what guidance I was supposed to be providing myself. Um, but the other thing that would sometimes happen was, and, and I, fortunately, I don't think I ever said this out loud, but, um, it was certainly in my head a few times where somebody would call me upset, um, or, you know, talk to me in the locker room, upset about a, a about an incident or a file or whatever. And I'd be like, your problem is fucking bullshit. Like, oh, you want problems? I'll tell you problems. Um, and I, like, I caught myself in my head. I'm like, Jesus, Mike, stop, stop, stop. That is not, like, that's not healthy. That's not, um, and that's not the person I wanted to be. So, um, but, so the, the issue for me was not that I was fatigued by helping other people, is that I was fatigued by the combination of helping other people and not at all helping myself and not taking care of myself. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I just needed to unfuck my shit. Um, so that I could be the person I wanted to be to, to, you know, help my, help my teams and my friends. What does your balance look like now with work, work in your personal life? And how do you balance this? How have you learned to balance it? 
Um, well, it's, that's hard. Um, it, you know, it's, depending on the role you're in, there, there's no way to be um, a police officer and not let it get in the way of your family. You know, whether it's shift work or call outs or after hours phone calls or whatever. Um, I, I'm, I'm also a crisis negotiator, so I, I'm on call for that periodically. Um, so it's great to say family first, but sometimes it's family first after work. Um, sometimes it's family first when I get home at two in the morning after the, you know, the barricade, um, or whatever. So, um, fortunately I have a very understanding wife and family, um, that, that get it. Um, but it's also incumbent on me to, um, when it's family time to make it family time and to, to focus on that and not be looking at my, you know, my work emails and, um, so just, I have to be strategic about when I do it because sometimes I am on call and I'm expected to answer the phone. So when I'm not, I, I, I try to take advantage of that. Um, and it might be putting my phone on do not disturb. It might be, uh, um, you know, taking the dog and my kid to the park, um, and leaving my phones at home, um, so that I'm, I'm detached from that and I'm not distracted by, um, oh, this, this thing happened at work. I wonder how that's going. Um, so, and I, I used to be, I used to be all in all the time kind of thing when it came to, um, my job, um, and, and family really did come second. Um, so, and it, it still has to be like that sometimes. Um, but I, I make sure that when it doesn't have to be that, that it is, that it is not. Um, if it's work first, it's because work has to be first. Um, and every other opportunity I get, it's, it's family. Or, or whatever else, whether it's, you know, family, friends, recreation, um, some sort of healthy activity like going for a walk or stopping, taking 10 minutes out of my day to do, uh, you know, 20 push-ups and 20 air squats, whatever, whatever thing that is not cop stuff. One of the things I loved uh, early on when I called you and connected with you and I knew you were very well because I, I could just tell through the words you were using. When we first connected, you, you told one of your coworkers, hey, I got to be in the back room here. I got to take this phone call. It's more personal, but I'm here. Right. And I was like, right on. This dude understands that he can step back in the job and still let everybody know he's there, but take some time for the things that he feels are important. And that is also very huge, too. That's something that I didn't do on the job is I gave myself 110 percent to the job 24 seven. And I ran myself ragged. So compassion fatigue was definitely a part of my world. And compassion fatigue comes from that space of giving too much. Mm hmm of yourself and never replenishing mm -hmm. uh, some of the things that you feel you need. So I'm glad to hear that you're doing that. That is how it should be. So not only are you doing this on your days off, you're making sure you're self-caring, you're doing the walk with the dog, you're not with the phone, you're taking a little bit of a break here and there at work when you can. Police officers need that too. We need to go and decompress and connect and let stuff out. That's just a normal part of the day. So take it easy on us if you see us out for a coffee. Now, the, the big part of this is you've obviously gotten to a point now and you've clearly explained just how you've done it through making sure that you're not walking towards compassion fatigue anymore. 
and you're very, very comfortable with where you're at. I think you're doing very well. But something that you're also very passionate about is you also, I believe, tell a lot of people this, and it's very, very uh, wise advice, is to go and get help before you need help. Absolutely. Um, uh, so first of all, I basically tell this story now to anybody who will listen. Um, because... The more times people hear this kind of stuff, um, the more it normalizes it. And people have to recognize that this is, this is normal. What you went through, what I've gone through, what, what countless other people have gone through is normal. A normal reaction to abnormal circumstances where most, most of us think it's the other way around, that we are reacting abnormally to normal circumstances. Well, it's not normal to see the stuff that that cops and firefighters and paramedics, etc., see every day. It's not normal to see that much blood. It's not normal to see that many dead people. Um, it's not normal to see that many people on their worst day, um, whatever that worst day looks like. And that that just might be the simple fact that their car was stolen, or their purse was stolen, and the rent money was in it, or or whatever. Um, like nonstop, people don't call the police because they're having a good day. They call the police and the and paramedics, and they call nine one one when they're having what may very, well, very, may very well be the worst day of their life, or at least the worst day in a long time. Um, so for us to be affected by that is 100% normal. Um, in fact, it would be, it would be strange and, and something to, to pay attention to if you weren't affected by that. Um, so what I, what I tell people and I tell, you know, recruits that come to our department, um, I, I tell every, anybody and everybody that will listen is that it's, really important to have a relationship with some sort of helping profession, uh, whether it's a psychologist or a counselor or, um, you know, a faith leader, if, if you're a, a spiritual person, uh, whatever that looks like for you, some safe place, independent from your family, that you can go and, um, and talk to. And the reason it's important to do that in advance is because like in, in, in my circumstance, when I finally decided, Oh shit! I really gotta go talk to somebody. Um, then, then I had to go through the process of finding somebody. Um, you know, and I, there was a couple people that weren't taking new patients. And then there was I finally I get to this guy um, that I thought would be great because of their background, and it turned out that it was a bad experience. Um, um, and it, and it, that doesn't mean they were a bad therapist. It was a bad experience for me. Um, it wasn't the right fit for me um, for for a number of reasons. Um, but I also know tons of people that go to that person and, and with great success and great experience. So it's not just about finding the right, it's not just about finding a therapist. It's about finding the right one that is going to be, um, be able to help you in your specific circumstances. Um, so by starting that process early in the career and building that kind of trust relationship about small things as you go along through the process, then when shit does hit the fan and you've had the worst day of your career um, and you need help with it, you don't then have to spend weeks or months trying to find the right person that can help you. Um, and it will also help, that will also help you um, understand what, what you can expect from those, those horrible calls um, and start building um, some resilience tools. That doesn't mean you're going to be immune to it, but if you are doing the right things in advance, 
and know what things to do when it happens, um, then hopefully that's going to prevent, you know, kind of the worst from happening, whether it be, well, I don't need to go into that list, but, um, yeah. Now, can, can we just reflect real quick too on, and this is something else that I find is so important. I think from my own journey, uh, I went through two or three psychologists before I finally found the right guy. And I remember every time I would meet with somebody, I was like, this guy's not for me. Mm-hmm. And I kind of looked externally at him and was more of like, okay, I don't, I don't think it was a judgment thing, but I also don't think I allowed myself the opportunity to even connect with myself in that moment. So the other part of this is, yeah, you, sh- you should go out and find the right person for you that allows you to connect with yourself and feel safe so that you can let some of those more inner dark personal thoughts out. Cause you and I both know, Mike, once you go through enough trauma, your dark, your thoughts go very dark. Mm-hmm. Right. And then there's times where we hold that back with shame and we build the dam thinking, Oh, I can't let that out. I can't tell anybody I've had mm-hmm. these thoughts. I'll lose my job. Mm-hmm. Right. But that's where it goes. So if you're not letting that out too, I mean, you're not really serving yourself either. So it's such an interesting topic of finding the right person. Yeah. Because it really is very much about yourself too. You got to be able to find yourself in this process at the same time and be willing to have the vulnerability, connect with yourself truly and say, here's my story. Here's what it is. It's ugly. It's gross. I need to get it out. Yeah. And, and having that, that, that relationship with, with a therapist and that that trust and that connection makes it so much easier when you are in the darkest of places to be honest with them and not that what you're saying to so you're you know if you if the very first time you go to a psychologist um and, and he asks you hey, hey have you ever considered suicide um you you want to be able to answer that question honestly um but if 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 and I, I never got to that place, fortunately. Um, but if I if I was, and when I went to that, especially that one therapist that I didn't have a good experience with, he if he had asked me that, um, if I if I was considering suicide, I would have said no, a hundred percent no, because I didn't trust him and I didn't feel safe in that in that place. Um, so you, you, like you you need to be able to be honest and know that that person's there to help you. Um, and as cops, we're skeptical of everybody. So you're, you're sitting in front of a therapist for the first time and you know that the, um, you know, your department or the force or whatever is paying the bill. Um, whose side are they on? Right? Like, are are they going to help me or are they going to fuck me? Um, sorry. I hope you, uh, don't mind the F-bombs. I can't speak without them. I use it like a comma. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, so you, you have to have that, you have to have that trust that sort of mutual trust that um that they can they can believe that you're being honest with them um so that they don't have to second guess like do i need to take this guy off the road or is he okay he just needs some 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 help first things first i support free speech You're going to be an explicit guest on this show now. Congratulations. Uh, but it's all good. And that's, and that's so right. I love how you touch on this. And suicide is one of those things. I'm just posting about it right now uh, on Instagram. So by the time this airs, I mean, it'll be, there's going to be a huge gap between uh, first responder suicide and what we're talking about now. But anyways, a great topic to think about. Because for me, 
Absolutely. When I first walked in and I was asked that question, have you had any suicidal thoughts preemptively? I was like, no, that's disgusting. Why would I do such a thing? But deep down inside, I actually had what was called suicidal ideation, which wasn't actually necessarily the thought of harming yourself, but it's the thought of not wanting to be here anymore because you're in just such this, this pain and this, this suffering and you don't have or experience happiness anymore and your sleep is horrible. And, and how could you not get to that? place i think all cops eventually will get to a place where they look at their life and they go i don't really want to be here anymore after everything i've seen in the way i feel as a result of my service uh and truth be told like when, when i first sat down with the psychologist like, and this guy was pretty good right i didn't like him but he was still pretty good and he's like so have you ever thought about this and i'm like no and he's like mm-hmm He's like, you're talking about this much pain and you haven't thought about it. And then I was like, wait, there's a relationship between the two. Like it should be happening. Are you calling me out right now? <laughs> Do you know something? And I was like, damn, he knows me. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, again, these are all very normal reactions to, like you said, abnormal circumstances for us to hold shame over the thought of wanting to end our own life because of the pain that we're in. And don't even look at, at that don't even look at it that way because it's just a part of your story. You can go and get help. And much like yourself, you're not even close to that place anymore, Mike. Mm-hmm. Right? You're happy. You're experiencing happy emotions, right? Which is fundamental to our success. So thank God you uh, had put the work in and you have such a var- very valuable lesson to others. Uh, And I love the part too about prevention for PTSD. A lot of times we talk about PTSD and it's very reactionary. It's about, okay, how do we get you out of the pot of boiling water now and put you back together? I love how you're very open about telling others, go get help before you need help. That's fundamental. Now, one other thing too that I really like about your approach to your own mental health uh, and your overall strategy, and I picked up on this earlier on, but it sounds like you're a lot more open now to setting boundaries and saying no. Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, but I, I tend to be an over committer in terms of stuff that I take on. Um, so yeah, I think I'm better at saying, yeah, I can't, I can't do that because I need to carve out that, that part of my week for the family or for rest or for whatever, um, whatever kind of self-care. Oops. Sorry about that. Whatever self-care I need, you know, that uh, particular day. Um, so, yeah, I, I, am, I am better at that about um, um, knowing my own limitations. And again, that's a very big part of the journey is having the awareness uh, when you recognize you need to take your foot off the gas a little bit. I think for many of us, when we first start out, we think we're invincible and we put our foot down to the pedal, to the floor, and we go as hard as we can for as long as we can. Mike, you've been through so much. You've you've talked a lot about some of the personal things you went through uh, with myself, uh, going back to the RCMP as well. And now that you're with Abbotsford, what are some of the things that Abbotsford is doing with their mental health approach and their PTSD that you absolutely love? Um. The, the most, I think the most important thing is that there is a, um, we have a mandatory annual check-in with the psychologist um, once a year for everybody in the building. It's not just sworn members, it's everybody. Records, transcription, front counter, members of all ranks. Um, and there, I think there's huge value to that. And 
because first of all, everybody is doing it. It's not just, oh, so-and-so is going to see the site today. They must be having a rough time. No, everybody's doing it. We're all doing it. Um, and and there's, there'll always be skepticism about, oh, it's mandatory. So that means it's, you know, it's for the employer. Well, so they're, they're, they're reading everybody's notes. They know um, everything about all the deep, dark secrets we're all telling them. Well, that's, that's not the case. So first of all, psychologists have rules that they have to follow and they would be um, not disbarred, but whatever sanction they would get if they were breaching that sort of trust. What doesn't matter who's paying the bill, they still have to follow their own, you know, professional standards. Um, so once people get over that skepticism or, or mistrust of, of management, I think it's a, it's a great thing that, that we have, we all have to do it. Um, and, and I know there's some people that, you know, go in there with a screw you attitude. I'm not going to tell you anything because nobody can tell me when I have to talk about my problems. Um, there's always going to be people like that. Um, and that, that's fine. Some, some people just can't be reached. Um, and that's, it's too bad that it's like that, but, um, the focus needs to be on the people that can be reached. Um, um, you know, we can only help the people that we can help. <coughs> um, so yeah, so, so that is, um, that, I think that's the best thing that, uh, that our department does in terms of wellness. Um, there's all sorts of other little things that come up here and there. Um, you know, for a while, pre COVID we had, uh, uh, once a week we had, um, uh, access to a yoga studio um, that was paid for jointly by our union and management. Um, we have a great gym um, in the building as well as at our union building, um, and there's you know we're encouraged to um, to work out on our on our meal breaks. Um, so there's lots of little things like that, um, and and also I think the understanding that there is no one thing. That works for all people. Um, so mandatory psych uh, evaluations every year is not going to work for everybody in the department. But even if it works for 20% of them and something else works for another 20% and something else works for another 20%, sooner or later you found you have found something for everybody or at least as many people as possible. So having I a think diverse there was a approach, I guess, is... Yeah. Yeah, that's how you win this war. You yeah. make sure you provide as many options and solutions as possible. Because like you said, there's going to be a lot of, especially younger people, I would I would tend to think, I don't really know, but I'm going to you know branch out and suspect that a lot of younger people, uh, especially from past generations, would shy away from those mandatory psych meetings and not really capitalize on them, right, for one reason or another. One of the things that I actually also really uh, liked that you talked about as well was the this issue that forms uh, in police throughout their service of lack of trust for everyone mm -hmm. and i think for some of us it can flip into loose thoughts of paranoia right having to go to the psych and the psych's going to give my notes to the to the chief and the chief doesn't i mean not that he doesn't care but he's not going to breach those ethics and those conduct rules that are there set up to protect you as an employee, there's rights here. And that's something I think we need to get better at too, is challenging ourselves in those moments and helping the younger generation or whoever is still trying to champion this belief of paranoia and antitrust that no, okay, this is, this is something that should be celebrated by 
all members. It's a cultural shift that needs to happen in order for us to all move along in this together. So it sounds like Abbotsford's actually doing a phenomenal job of this. I know the Mounties doesn't do it this way, and I hope one day that they can change and uh, beef up their mental health supports. Uh, they have their own challenges that they have to uh, to deal with. So that's uh, that's their shtick. I'm going to stay out of it. I'm, I'm just a podcaster here. So just connecting with all the beautiful people that have learned the lessons and willing to share it on the outside, right? And that's that's also, too, something that's very cool um, is the external support that now exists on such a topic like this. Like, we're just meeting, you know, as, as normal people would on a street, having a conversation about mental health. There's no stigma. There's no shame. I accept you. You accept me. We get it all out. And we, uh, we can hopefully grow from that space. And that's, it's a truly powerful space to be in. And, and it helps us navigate some of those hard calls that we go through. So, Mike, it's been an absolute honor. Uh, in closing, I want to give you an opportunity just to kind of give us that last Mike Wilford piece of hope. Whatever that strong message is in you that you have that you can give to people. And if I'm putting you on the spot, I'm sorry I can continue to talk and we can just wrap up the show. <laughs> but you're a smart guy. You've been through a lot. I totally trust that you can uh, you can maybe shed a little tear and connect with your own sadness and let people know that it's okay not to be okay. There's no shame in that. You literally just took the words right out of my mouth that I was gonna Did say. Did I really? I'm horrible. Yeah, we're, we're, let's, let's, let's edit. Let's edit that out. That one's from Mike. No, 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 no. The more people that say it, the better it is. Um, it is. It is, man. It's okay to be not okay. It's normal to be not okay. Um, it's normal to be impacted by um, the stress uh, of this job. Um, and it's normal to need to get help for it. It's normal to need to take time off for it. It's normal. Um, nobody thinks twice. If I blow my knee in a foot chase jumping over a fence... Um, and those again that don't be are probably laughing right now because I'm not I'm not likely to get in foot chases anymore. But um, but if I blow my knee jumping over a fence to chase a bad guy, I'll be getting high fives in the lunchroom. Not not oh geez yeah uh, what happened oh, that guy hurt his knee. No, um, there's nothing wrong with that, and there's mechanisms to um, to treat it, and we have sick time for it, and we have WCB for it, or Veterans Affairs, or. Um, we, we just go get it fixed. And we wouldn't, if, if, if I blow up my knee, I'm not going to hide at home and pretend that it's something else and not go to the doctor for it. I am, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm going to get him to um, prescribe physio or surgery or whatever it is I need. And I'm going to follow that doctor's advice and I'm going to do it and I'm going to heal and I'm going to come back stronger. Having um, a, an operational stress injury or or PTS, or, or just having a really shitty time because of a really shitty file is just as normal as hurting yourself on the job or rolling your ankle on a hike or, um, you know, putting your back out from sitting, typing a warrant for too long, <laughs> whatever it looks like. It's, it's, there's no difference. Um, and nobody judges you for taking too long to heal your, your broken arm. So there's, there should be no judgment for taking too long to heal your broken soul. You heard it from Mike Wilford. The only thing that exists in between you, your struggle, and the support that you need is you. 
Mike, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show today. You're a phenomenal cop. Uh, your life is well on track. You're a healthy individual. You've you've worked very hard to get to where you're at, and I'm extremely proud of you, brother. Uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for your message. We could continue to go on and on and on, but we do need to take a break, both for personal reasons. So thank you once more for this uh, this amazing episode. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Cheers, everybody. Thank you for joining us on Season 2. If you are a first responder with an incredible story into post-traumatic stress, please reach out and connect with myself. Season 2 is based on your story. And if you want to step up to the plate and share your story with the world, I would be more than honored to help you do that. Thank you for your continued support with this project, and thank you for tuning in today.